You know, um, Palm Sunday is an incredible Sunday that we remember. And so tonight, leading into this Holy Week, leading toward Easter, I just encourage you, um, you know, we do notes if you're new. Uh, we do notes on Version. It's a free Bible app that you can get on Android, iPhone, all that kind of stuff. And uh, so there's notes for tonight's message, but there's also some particular messages or some Bible reading plans for Holy Week. And so I just encourage you that if that's something that you want to dive into and just kind of lean into Holy Week, that you can look those up, do that on your own and each day. Uh, you know, Jesus went to Jerusalem, went toward that last final week of his life. Obviously, he knew the resurrection was coming. No one else knew that. And so, but he went there not just to the cross. You know that. He went there for you, for me. That's what drove him that week, was this not just the cross and his death and his burial, his resurrection in a generic sense, but in a specific sense, like with your name on it, my name on it. And so I just encourage you as you lean in to Holy Week, uh, to maybe use this week to reflect a little bit on that and uh, how much God loves you individually, you and the person next to you, but back to you. He loves you. And so just lean into that uh, this week. So I don't know how many of you have been on a family trip cross-country before, and not on a plane, okay? Plane, unless you get delayed, is simple. I'm talking like in a car, stuck next to your brother or sister, or aunts and uncles, with people with BO, and you're riding for four days, stuff like that. I, I remember moving my sister-in-law um, to Louisville, Kentucky, and I said that correctly, Louisville. That's how you say it. Not Louisville. Um, and so moving them, and I was sick. And I remember you kind of go on this epic journey that takes four days. And uh, my father-in-law's here. He remember we drove that truck. And you drove most of it because I was sick most of the time. And, but here's what you get back after you. I flew home. And we always talk about that trip because it's epic in a way. And you remember different different things that happened along the way, the time that you had to maybe change a flat tire, the moment that that hotel, and you're like, why in the world do we stay at this hotel? That's wrong. Just all of humanity, this is wrong. And just all those just different stories that happened along the way. And we've been on this journey a little bit through the book of Acts. And so if you're not familiar with the Bible, there's four accounts of the life of Jesus. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's the gospel accounts. Luke writes a sequel, so to speak, of following up the early church, and that's the book of Acts. And so if you want to go to that, we're going to be in Acts chapter 12 tonight, but I'm going to just kind of do a rewind a little bit of some of the things we've hit along the way, because we're ending this series tonight, and obviously some of you who are engineer type, you're like, wait a minute, Acts doesn't end in chapter 12. Yes, good for you, you caught that. Um, so are you fixing the hum? Thank you. And so this idea of Acts chapter 12, you can read the rest and go throughout that story, um, and it'll be, it'll be a great thing, and you can do that on your own. We wanted to take a story and just kind of say what this whole series is about, this unleashing of the early church. And last week, Kimberly looked at this notion that no one is beyond the grace of God. No one's beyond the reach of God and His grace and His hope and how it can transform and be this huge wake-up call in someone's life. And some of you have experienced that fresh like, you're new into this journey with Jesus, and that is so awesome, and I'm so excited for you. And we want to be the kind of church that helps you take continual next steps in that journey with him. But we've been looking at how this church movement, this movement of Jesus got unleashed 
in a way. And he talks about this, this power. Remember the very first week we looked at this idea that this was, this was God showing up in power in the church. The Holy Spirit descends, and now God is with his people through the Holy Spirit, and, and things that should not be happening are actually happening, and that's when you know God's involved. When things, they shouldn't happen, but they are happening. And then when we kind of walk down, maybe some of these phrases will remind you of some things. This idea of the connected life is greater than what? The surrounded life. That this early group of followers, they lived life connected to one another. And we're working on that at Element City Church and trying to uh, raise up some small groups and things that we can get connected in. You're going to start hearing more about that. Different things like starting point, like a different class that you can connect and get to know some other people. And so things are coming for that because this connected life is really important. We talked about staying aware to divine appointments and being alert to those teachable moments where God wants to teach and lean into your life. To be bold in your faith, but not brash about your faith. Remember, that's what the early church was. They were bold in their faith, but they weren't beating people up with that. They were just living this way. We talked about the spiritual life is about continual next steps with God, that you see this early church just continually taking these next steps of faith. And then a life of faith is lived in motion with God. And so all along this journey, we've been seeing these different things. And tonight, I want us to unpack one more thing. Maybe wrestle with a question that we all ask, and then lean into one final reality that Acts chapter 12 kind of leans us and pushes us toward. And then we're going to worship a little bit more here at the end, and, and I've got a couple last things to say at, at the end. So that's kind of our night. That's where we're going. Ready? All right, Acts chapter 12. This is a, a moment that, uh, remember this Jesus movement is all about this hope and grace of God, in, you know, meeting individual people. It's changing everything. This is the story that's the most significant and unstoppable story on the face of the planet. It is still going, and it was going long before we got here, and guess what? It'll be going long after I'm gone, because it's the story of God. It's his power on display. It's moving. It's changing lives. And in Acts chapter 12, we see, we've been seeing this opposition kind of crank up a little bit against the church and against this movement of Jesus, and here's what we begin to see. It was about that time, verse 1, that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison and handed him over to be guarded by these squads of soldiers. Something's happening. This persecution that's been kind of ramped up at certain points. Remember Peter and John go before the Sanhedrin, this big council. They're kind of told, hey, don't, don't talk about Jesus. Then all 12 are brought before him. Hey, don't talk about Jesus. And they're beaten, remember? And now you have King Herod getting involved. King Herod is, comes from a long legacy of some bad dudes. I don't know, how many of you have ever been to Tombstone before? Anyone in Cowboy, got your cowboy on, you went down to Tombstone? And he said, hey, Tombstone is where it's at. I remember going as a little kid, and they have this cool thing. Have you ever heard of the OK Corral, right? The OK Corral shootout. And if you go to the OK Corral, I don't know if they still have it. It was the coolest thing. I remember this when I was seven. And you walked in, in the restaurant there, in the museum that was there, to the right, over in the corner, was the cowboy machine. Remember this? This dual machine. Do you remember this? Where literally you'd put in a quarter, and there was this robot cowboy at the end, and he would count down, one, two, three, draw, right? And you got to have a draw with this electric, mechanical cowboy. And I remember as a kid for like five minutes begging my parents, please, just one more quarter. 
I've got him. And, and we just go through this for, it seemed like hours. I'm sure my parents were like, let's go. It's tombstone. Um, but, you know, it's just, I was there. This is having the time in my life, having this draw and all this stuff. You read about all the history. There's a, a part a little bit further away from Tombstone called Boot Hill. Everyone heard of Boot Hill? Boot Hill is a cemetery where all these bad guys are supposedly buried, right? I don't know if it's totally true. It's probably for tourism, but it looks cool because it's named Boot. Anything named Boot is just kind of cool. Just name your next son Boot. That's awesome. And so um, Boot Hill is this place where these like just evil people and these kind of people that were just cowboy after cowboy and, and just the black hat cowboys, not the white hat cowboys, the black hat cowboys who were buried on this hill and you begin walking through there, you see this legacy of bad. And that's what I want you to keep in mind as we look at Herod, because Herod comes from this legacy of bad dudes, the black hat Herod rulers of the day, okay? His grandfather was Herod the Great. Anyone know anything about Herod the Great? You can read a little bit about him in Matthew chapter 2. Because Herod's the one that kind of, he was in charge and rule, and he did some evil things. In fact, he found out his wife and her mom were kind of eyeballing the throne a little bit, so he, he whacked them off. They were just, they were gone. He found out that three of his sons were kind of eyeballing the throne a little bit, and he had them killed. In fact, the last one he had killed five days before he died, because he just feared this idea of losing control of, of his dominion of his, uh, his little kingdom, so to speak. And so he had his son, all three sons kind of killed there. Uh, we, Matthew chapter 2, remember, here's the one that kind of set out when the wise men came and said they're looking for baby Jesus. And then they had all these little kids killed. Guess who gave that decree? Herod. So Herod Agrippa now is leaning back into his grandfather's steps and understand he's living out this legacy. And so Herod is saying, no, no, I'm the one in charge. In fact, in Roman rule... He's only kind of given the governor over these lands because of his allegiance to the new Caesar. And he had a friendship with this new Caesar. And so he's finally given control over this land. And he's not really trusted by the Romans a whole lot. And in fact, he's really not trusted by the Jewish leaders there as well. But if he wants to get in good with the Jewish leaders, what does he do? Well, he wants to take care of some of the riffraff, some of the trouble that the Jewish leaders are facing. What are they facing? The early Christian church. And so he says to James, he has James hauled in, he kills him with the sword. I don't know if he does, it's probably his henchman. He kills James, and now the church is kind of on high alert. This is the first martyrdom outside of uh, Stephen being stoned, we know that, but this is the first one of one of the apostles being taken out. So think about that for a second. You have this early church movement about hope and grace and, and love, and all of a sudden this opposition is getting turned up from, hey, you're in trouble don't do it again to, hey, we're going to beat you, to now we're actually killing people that are following you. Don't you think that kind of raises the temperature a little bit? Is it warm in here? A little bit. If it is, we could do that. Um, but so all these things are, are kind of taking place, and Herod has this grip over these people, and he's wanting to make a change. And so he has James killed. He has Peter brought in, and during the feast, he says, I'm going to, after this feast, I'm going to take Peter out. Now, Peter's one of the main leaders of the early church. So do you think it's tense right now? Do you think that there may be some, some things going on behind the scenes as Herod's trying to say, I'm the one who's large and in charge here. I'm in control. I'm on the top, and you're going down. 
He knows Peter's escaped from prison before, so he puts 16 guards on rotation. Two of them handcuffed to him, two of them just outside of the prison cell. And so we know things are going to, we can read the rest of the story, we know what's going to happen, but just think about this tension that would have been there, because they don't know the outcome. We do. We know how things work out. So it goes on here, verse 4. After arresting him, putting him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each, Herod intended to bring him out to public trial after the Passover. So Herod's going to bring him out. What do you think he's going to do with Peter? Don't you think it's probably the same thing he did to James? In public. But I want you to look at the very next verse, verse 5. Here's one of the keys. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The church was earnestly praying for him. Now what we're going to see as we look through this story is this amazing work of God on behalf of the prayers of his people. It's also the plan of God. There's a great... uh, bottom line truth that we're going to see at the end of tonight that comes out of this teaching. But what we're going to see here is, is I want to do a little caveat, a little, a little struggle, because here's, here's what we know. I'm going to tell you the end of the story. Peter escapes, okay? Peter gets out. You can read ahead. You're not cheating. Go ahead. But Peter gets out. Now, the struggle I had this week looking through this message um, was this question. Why Peter why not James? Do you ever stop to think about that? I mean, I've read the story so many times, but have you ever stopped to think, why didn't it work out for James? See, we know it works out for Peter. And we're, it's awesome how it works out. We're going to go through it. But why didn't it work out for James? And it got me thinking about this question that comes to mind often in my life, and maybe it comes to mind for you, is the question of why. Why does God allow some things to happen that don't turn out? Why does God allow you or your family or your friends to receive that phone call that changes everything? Why why was it your child taken early? Why, Why was it your child that gave the pink slips? Do you ever struggle with the why question? God, why? Why are you allowing this to happen? I wonder if the early church, if they prayed for James. I bet they did. But why didn't it work out for James? Maybe the struggle with that why question is we want the answer, don't we? God, why why doesn't this relationship that I was working on actually pan out? Why did it fall apart? Why, Why... Why? Why? These questions begin to ring and and penetrate in your heart. If you were honest, if it was just maybe you and me in the room and we could be real with each other, I bet you've wrestled with the why question before. Because I know I have. God, I I don't understand why. I I don't understand why things turn this way or why things turn... Why did that happen to this person? Why did you allow that? And we begin to wrestle with this begin to wrestle with this haunting question. See, sometimes answers, or sometimes that why question has an answer to it. And sometimes those why questions are unanswerable. 
and, and they feel like they're in a mist or in a fog or they're invisible even, don't they? Have you ever been there? That those questions just kind of haunt at you. And, and maybe uh, the thing I'd love to steer us to, that it's okay to wrestle with those why questions. Just don't become stuck in the why questions. Because there's maybe a better answer. And maybe the answer isn't, here is why, but maybe the answer is, here's who I can take my why questions to. Here's the who that can actually, you know, that's actually big enough to handle my why questions. You ever think about this thought? Your why questions and wrestling and struggles don't catch God off guard. They don't knock him off his throne. He doesn't slap his head and go, oh, I never thought of that before. God is sovereign. In fact, what the scriptures begin to teach over and over again is that God is way bigger than you and way bigger than me, that he is God and I am not. And I may not have the answers to why, and I may long for those, and I may want those, but God is okay with giving me space to wrestle with those. Just, friends, listen, don't become stuck. Because what happens is people get intimidated by those why questions, and they begin to wrestle with those doubts, and they give up on God, and they actually use it to hold God at a distance. You can't answer all my why questions, so therefore I'm not going to relate to you. And the truth is, you don't do that with people you love. You don't understand everything of the why people do the way they do, but when you have a relationship with them, you're, you're, you're held by trust in that. You're, you're working in faith. You're trusting the best you know how in that because that person has been uh, been truthful to you in the past, and so you're willing to, to take an extra step with them when it's that loving kind of relationship. And maybe when, when we face those opportunities and face those struggles in life, those are those moments when we can either let the why question drive us away from God or drive us to God and say, God, you're big enough to handle my doubts and to handle my struggles and to handle my confusion and to handle my worry. I don't understand. But what I do know about you is that you're for me. And when you're for me, I can come to you. And I can wrestle with that with you, that you're a safe place to go to. See, often the enemy loves to take those why questions. And, and, I, and I, I barely touched the surface. I know some of the why questions that maybe you've wrestled with um, would, boggle, uh, would boggle my mind. Because all of us have faced different things in the past. But I know the enemy would love, that Satan loves to take those why questions and to force us to be intimidated by them and to run toward isolation. It's part of that idea of, of intimidating people. In fact, there's a, an author named Tim Downs who writes a book called Head Games, looking at this idea of spiritual warfare and how the enemy loves to attack believers and, and those who are facing and trying to turn their life toward God. And he talks about this idea of psyops. And psyops is this idea of psychological operations, of intimidation, so to speak. And Alexander the Great used to do this. In fact, there was one time where he was fleeing away from an army, and he had his armorers make armor, so breastplates and this helmets that would fit the size of an eight-foot-tall man. And they would make these, and they would leave them as they're running and fleeing, so that the other person who was pursuing them would see these and go, 
we're not going to face giants, and they would give up the pursuit. And I, and I think sometimes the enemy loves to take our why questions and make them bigger than they really are. And it and helps get us stuck in those places that we don't go to who we can trust. We try to wrestle with the why questions all on our own. In fact, you can't help but read through the book of Job. And if you've never read the book of Job, here's Job's story. He's got a lot of good things going for him. And Satan goes to God and says, he loves you because he's got all these good things. Let me take some of these good things away and he's going to curse you. And so he takes these good things away. And you can read the narrative of Job and, and just chapter after chapter of these why questions. Things that you and I maybe haven't even faced that just haunt, would be haunting for him to have to face. And then in chapter 38 through 41, God says, Job, I want you to, to kind of sit still and I'm going to ask you questions. And here's some of what God says in chapter 38. He says words like these. Where were you when I laid out the earth's foundation? Job, where were you when I laid out the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? I mean, surely you know. Who stretched out the measuring line across it? On what were its footings put? And who laid the cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and the angels shouted for joy? And God has these questions for Job. And Job comes to this realization at the end in verse 41, verse 5. He says, you know, I've heard about you, God, but now I've seen you. And he has this revelation that's very simply this. God, you are so much bigger than I've ever given you credit for. And even though I don't understand all the why questions... I'm recognizing a beautiful reality. You are God, and I am not. And you truly are large and in charge, and I am not. And as much as our world tries to push us to grab control, the truth is you are not in control. Are you? That how God works in these scriptures is constantly pulling us back to this greatness of who he is. And that in light of seeing the greatness of God, we realize who we are. And the beauty that this great God not only created me, but knows my name and actually pursued a relationship with me. And made a way for me to actually connect with him relationally. Not just know about him and know some stuff and some details, but to actually relate with him through Jesus. That is an amazing reality. And that is the kind of relationship that begins to work and build out this trust that says, I, I even when I'm struggling with the why, I know I can go to the who. I can go to who I trust and who loves me and who cares about me. And I can bring my why questions there and I can wrestle with those with him, that it's safe for me to ask those questions. And sometimes I'll get an answer to it. And sometimes maybe like Job, you'll get an answer of, you know, I just need you to trust me. I do that as a parent with my kids sometimes. And I'm in a scenario, I'm in a situation, and they don't realize everything that's going on in the moment. And what do I say to them as a parent? I need you to just trust me. And we walk out of that room or we walk out of that area because I see what's going on. They're unaware of everything that's going on. Why? Because they're five. They can't get it all. Isn't what Isaiah says? God says, my thoughts are not like your thoughts. 
My ways are not like your ways. I'm bigger and I'm greater and I'm more. And I need you to trust me with those whys sometimes. And so we know things work out well for Peter. We'll get back to that. But I just wanted to camp there for a second because my hunch is some of you are stuck in those why questions. God, I don't know enough about you to really turn my life over to you. I still got some questions. And I want to say to you, that's great. Keep asking questions. But if you know enough, because isn't that the reality of all relationships? You don't know everything before you get into it. But when you know enough, you give your life to that relationship, true? And you figure the rest out along the way because you're committed and you know they're committed to you. And maybe that's how our spiritual journey is supposed to work. That those why questions, those moments when things unfold in your life and you become stuck by them because they don't make sense and you don't understand and the pain is too real. Maybe the truth is, even if you knew the why, it wouldn't take, it wouldn't numb the pain. Even if he gave you the full answer. But what he says to you is, my presence is enough. You're not alone in the why. So you keep leading. I love how, um, how Paul talks about this in Romans. This idea of God's in charge. He's God, I'm not. And he, he writes about this in, in, in Romans chapter 11. I'll just read this to you. This is called the doxology. It's the end of chapter 11. It says this, Oh, the depths of the riches of wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable is his judgment. His path is beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. God is God and I'm not. And I can bring my why questions. My hunch is that's what James did. God, I don't know why I'm in prison. I don't know why I got to go first. If I was James, that's what I'd be saying. Why do I got to go first? But God, I'm going to trust you. And here we have Peter. So the story goes on, right? Herod thinks he's large and in charge. He's killed James. He's put Peter in prison. He's got 16 guards watching him. And what we find next is Peter, the night before he's going to be called out into this trial, probably going to face the same ending that James has coming to him or had coming to him, He's going to be there. And you know what Peter's doing? Sleeping. Doesn't that blow your mind? That blows my mind. That Peter had so much peace that he said, God, no matter what happens, I don't know why I'm in here, but whatever happens, I'm with you. Because I may not have all the answers, but I know who does. And so I'm with you. And he's sleeping peacefully. In fact, uh, the verse goes on, verse 6. Just look at this. This is awesome. Verse uh, 6, The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two guards. So he's chained to two guards, right? He's got two other guards right outside the door. Peter's sleeping between them, uh, both chained, and the sentries stored guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and light shone in the cell. He struck Peter, literally in Greek. This is awesome. This angel kicks him in the ribs. It's not like, hey, Peter, get up. You know how many of you wake up your kids before school and you're like, hey, sweetie, time to get up for school, huh? Anyone ever got kicked in the ribs playing sports or something? It hurts, right? 
And I love how this angel, this, I don't know if it's a ninja angel like the Bible series. I think that's awesome. Um, I want a ninja angel for my guardian angel. But so he's like, hey, Peter, boom, kick him in the rims. Time to get up. Peter thinks it's this dream. And he says, hey, get dressed. The chains just fall off. No one's touched the chains. They just fall off. The door swings open. And you can read the next few verses. This angel leads Peter out, oh, not only out of this prison, but out of the whole prison yard. The, just the gates just kind of open as they're coming. It's like this Jedi trick or something. I don't know. But things open like Star Trek, and they're walking through, and it's, it's going. They finally get outside, and Peter finally wakes up. It says that he comes to his senses. It's the same words that Luke used back in uh, the Gospel of Luke. He said about the prodigal son, the prodigal son came to his senses. And he realized, why in the world am I feeding pigs? I can go be a servant back at my dad's house. I just, just kind of, the light bulb comes on. Finally, the light bulb comes on for Peter. And he says, I can't believe God has provided for me. Okay, that wasn't just a dream. I'm actually out here on Main Street. And I'm no longer in prison. And these guards that I was hanging around aren't here anymore. Could you imagine that miracle? That reality? And so Peter, what does he do? He runs to the house where the church has been praying. And he knocks on the door. And the servant girl comes to the door. And he says, hey, I'm Peter. Let me in. And she's like, what? It's in Greek. It's there. Um, and she runs back to the people that are in the room praying. And she's like, hey, Peter's at the door. They're like, you're silly. You've been eating too much bread. Peter, still at the door. Knocking. She goes back. Peter's still there. I say, hey, Peter, can I come in? No, you're the big bad wolf. Goes back. Peter's at the door. No, no, no. It's just a ghost. Finally, like the third time, Peter's still knocking, right? Finally, someone gets the wise idea to open the door. And there's Peter. And they're like, dude, like, you should be dead. Yeah, I know. I'm here. And they go in. He tells the whole story. And the church was praying for this to happen. Listen, but the church wasn't expecting it to happen. The longer we're a follower of Jesus... Our prayer life can drift into a plastic place, can it? It can drift into pretend. And maybe what the story is trying to drive home to the early church is when you pray to God, you expect God to be moving because God is always at work. God is always moving behind the scenes, even when it looks invisible to you. He is at work. You pray with anticipation. And you pray with expectation. Now, does that mean I can pray for a million dollars and it comes here? I don't know. I've tried. It hasn't worked yet. So this isn't prosperity gospel of, okay, pray for a new car and it happens. But here's what I will tell you. God's had me pray for things that have happened and things that have come this way. We currently are praying for something huge that should not happen. But we're asking and, and praying with expectation that God's got a place prepared for us in Midtown. And we're praying with expectation and anticipation of what he's going to do because it's his story. And we get to be a part of it. And maybe the beauty of all this story and what's unfolding here is that God's sovereign plan is always at work. It's always advancing. 
And we get to partner in prayer to help it gain traction in life. In our Mondays, in our Tuesdays, in our Wednesdays, and at your workplace, and at your school, and on your team, and in your neighborhood, you get to pray as a partner, saying, God, your, your mission, your sovereign plan is unstoppable. And it's always at work. I just want to pray in expectation and anticipation to see it gain traction in the people's lives around me. And my question to you, my question to us, is do we pray that way? I struggle with it at times, I'll be honest. My prayer life can sometimes not pray with expectation and anticipation. You ever been there? Am I alone? So maybe this is just a resurgence for us to say, let's pray with it with expectation that God's plans are always advancing. Don't let prayer drift. See, prayer is putting into tangible action our belief in a personal, caring God who is present and willing and able to act on our behalf and on the behalf of others around us. It's saying, God, you are a sovereign. You're large in charge. You're in control. Your plan is moving forward. And I'm praying with anticipation that you would work on my behalf and on the behalf of those around us, on behalf of our city. We need you. We need to see you move. And so this prayer, this, this church, Herod's got these plans. Here's what's going to happen. But the church is praying. And something that maybe they didn't even expect happens in that moment. Now here's the interesting thing. Acts chapter 12, verse 1, all about Herod, right? Here he comes from this long line, this long legacy. He's in charge. He's in control, right? Look at the end of chapter 12. This is the big point, I think, of this text for us. The end is uh, Herod doesn't like this whole idea. Peter escapes. He goes into hiding a little bit. Uh, Herod's pretty ticked. He has all 16 guards killed because they failed at their job. I'd hate to have that job. Um, but they, they fail at that. Herod goes on a little trip. He makes this speech. And the people that are there begin voicing some praise to Herod. They begin to say some things. On the appointed day, verse 21, Herod, wearing his royal robe, sat on his throne, delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a God and not of man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord, one, one angel of the Lord, struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. That is awesome. If you're a teenager, that is super awesome. That's like movie stuff right there. One angel, this, this guy, Herod, thinks he's large and in charge. And one angel on an assignment says, yeah, you're not. And he's eaten literally from the inside out from worms. What? Go ahead. Go enjoy dinner. Um, and then here's, here's the verse I want us to see. Because here's what Luke's driving home this whole chapter. But the word of God continued to increase and to spread, to flourish. See, Herod, you have this plan. And you have this, this notion of how things are going to work out. And you're going to squish this movement of Jesus. And you have it all planned out. And you think you're large and in charge. But what Luke is saying is, no, 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 you're not in charge. In fact, God's sovereign plans, they never falter. They never fade. They just continue advancing. 
and the word of God spread and began to flourish in that city. See, God's sovereign plan is always advancing. And friends, we get to pray in partnership with him for that to gain traction in our local expression, in our church, in the lives of our friends, in the lives of those we care about, in our city. We get to pray for that. See, from the very beginning of Acts, in this whole account of the early church, this unleashed early church, here's the one thing we've been seeing. God's plans never stop. They're never thwarted. Even when opposition comes at them, and even when things begin to be thrown at them, they just can't be knocked off course. Why? Because God is large and in charge, not human plans. Isn't that why we celebrate Easter? Human plans had a said and had a say, this is the end of this Jesus guy. Was it? Nope. It was just getting warmed up. That's why we celebrate Easter. Humanly speaking, that should have ended the movement. You killed the leader. They didn't count on the leader coming back to life. The movement was just getting warmed up. And that's the point. Here's what I'd love to do. Uh, we're going to continue on in worship. And um, we're going to take communion if you want to do that. We have some stations around the room. So if you're new, uh, we do that through the next couple songs. And you can do that at any point. Join in with us in worship. We're remembering Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. That he came on a mission, a rescue mission for you, for me. For anyone that would turn to him, that's why we, we take that bread. That's why we drink from that cup to remember. Not a ritual, but to remember a reality. That God's plans can never be stopped. They've been going long before you got here. And they're going to be going and rolling on long after we're gone. And the point of the mission that God's given us as a church, friends, is that he has plans for us to do. He has assignments for us to have in our city. And my encouragement to you, I'm, I plead with you, pray with me that his mission and his heart would gain traction and his plans and his endeavors would gain traction in the lives of people who are far from him, in the life of our city that is broken, that needs his hope. So let's be a people that pray with expectation and anticipation of what God's going to do in you and through you and with us. And so that's how I want to end tonight. It's just praying for us and just encourage you, lean in and you pray. Pray on your own and just pray for, for what God wants for Element City Church and for each one of you. Ways that you can serve and ways that you can get involved and ways that you can use your skills and your abilities and your talents to make a difference for his kingdom's story. And so, Father, that's what we pray tonight. God, humanly speaking, we make all these plans and all these endeavors and all these agenda items. But the reality is your sovereign plan, because you're the one who's large and in charge, you're the one who's in control, ultimately. Father, I pray that you would continue to use this movement here, your local church, Element City Church. 
that you'd help us to pray in partnership with you on behalf of this city, on behalf of our friends, on behalf of our family and those that are close to us, on behalf of those that are far away from you, that your love and your grace and your hope and your plans would gain traction in their life and in this city. Father, you know where you need to put us. We need you to put us there. You know how you want to use each and every one of us to to play a part and be a part of that puzzle of building the kind of kingdom that you want, that your, your kingdom might come on earth as it is in heaven. So would you use us? God, this week as we lean into Easter, we remember that what humanity thought they did in extinguishing actually just breathed new life into this movement of Jesus that we get to be a part of. So, Father, for any of us here that are stuck with whys, I pray that you'd meet us there, that we can bring our why questions and struggles to you, that you're a safe place. That, Father, this week you would stir us to pray with anticipation to partner with you. As we worship you, as we remember your sacrifice, Jesus, would you stir our hearts tonight?